a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. And then we're just going to skip forward to Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from me, from my decrees, and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Amen. I'm just going to grab my water. I reckon we're all looking for the good life, aren't we? Uh, A life that's fulfilling, a life that's satisfying, that's secure. And whether you believe in God or not, I don't think anyone is so cynical that they think the good life is just about how much stuff or money that you have, uh, or how good your job is. Uh, So what is the good life? What about love? Or love, as I call it. I reckon most people would agree that the key to feeling like you're winning at life is knowing that you're loved. And deep down, we all need someone to love us. We need to know that we're cared for, that someone has our back. Somebody cares what happens to us. Somebody notices when we're not there. But how do you know someone loves you? You know, for sure. What is real love and how do you show real love? Some literary greats put it like this. I've got a slide there. Thanks, Pete. You have, this is a poem. So you have, you have so many relationships in this life. Only one or two will last. You go through all the pain and strife. Then you turn your back and they're gone so fast. So hold on to the ones that, who really care. In the end, they'll be the only ones there. And when you get old and start losing your hair, can you tell me who will still care? Can you tell me who will still care? And the next line... Mbop, bop, bat, doo, wop, shubadap, bat, doo, wop, bat, bamboo. Yes, those literary greats are Hansen. Next slide. Uh, you might remember from the 90s. Hansen reckoned that real love and showing it was being faithful enough to stick around until you get old and start losing your hair. So I'm doing all right, I think. I'm doing pretty well. Uh, this book of Malachi begins by taking us straight... You can take Hansen off the screen, thanks. Just anything except Hansen. (laughs) Yeah, that'll be fine. This book of Malachi begins by taking us straight to the heart of the problem between God and his chosen people. So it's there in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? 
So God's people are doubting God's love for them. They're asking the question, why bother? Why bother with God? He doesn't seem all that bothered about us. And in the rest of Malachi, we'll see um, that shows us ways that has led them to being half-hearted and lukewarm about God. Now, we won't get to all of those today. But throughout Malachi, there's this gap between the reality that God knows is true and what his people think. Because they've forgotten what he's done for them and they don't know that he loves them. So do you? Do you know that God loves you? That's the question for all of this series, really. Or maybe there's things going on in your life that make you doubt God loves you. Maybe you're someone who finds it even hard to believe that a God could exist in such a a world full of such evil and suffering. Well, first, let's see why Israel are doubting God's love for them. So there's an outline uh, here. Thanks, Pete. So that's our rough outline. Great expectations, hard times, uh, changing our love lenses, and why bother? If you're into outlines, that's where you are. So great expectations, hard times. So are you ready? Strap in a very, very brief potted history of God's people in the Old Testament. You remember we did Genesis and God made a covenant with Abraham to bless him and his descendants that through them, the whole world will be blessed. He promises them a land of their own. He rescues them out of his people out of slavery in the Exodus from Egypt. And eventually they do end up in their own land. And the high point of that time is during King Solomon's reign. But after King Solomon, with a few exceptions, things are mostly downhill. God promises to bless Israel if they're faithful to him. But time and time again, they're unfaithful and rebel against God. They're worse than the nations around them. Until finally, they suffer exile to Babylon, Jerusalem, reduced to rubble. But again, God is merciful. He promised them that the exile was only temporary and that they'd return to the promised land. And that's exactly what happens. So by Malachi's time, the temple has been rebuilt and patterns have been established. So it must have been in use again for some time. So this is about 517 BC, we think. So given that they're back in this the promised land, and the temple's back up, they're back from exile. Why do they ask, how have you loved us? I mean, isn't that return from exile enough for them? Well, in Isaiah, God had promised that not only would they return to the promised land, but that their land would become a place of abundance and blessing. So impressive that the nations around them will be in awe and want to come there to praise God. So Isaiah 61 verse 7 Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of your disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land. And everlasting joy will be yours. I don't know what exactly a double portion is, but it sounds better than a single portion, doesn't it? So they were expecting the good life, relative ease, national pride, and political independence. A return to the glory days. But the reality had not yet lived up to that. They were still occupied by a foreign power. No real freedom. The temple was nowhere near as great as the old temple that had been destroyed. I mean, at least in Babylon, they'd been at the center of the world's most advanced civilization. Good jobs. 
back in the promised land, life was hard. And from their point of view, well, it's just a bit lame, really. So it's like the you know when you look in a glossy holiday brochure, perfect apartments right by the sea, and you get there and it's a building site, looking onto a building site. They were expecting Buffy Brecky, all-inclusive bar, daily massage, only to arrive and find it was like a run-down caravan park, run by overbearing killjoys with not even a poorly stocked bottle shop. So they feel shortchanged, they feel let down, they feel unloved. And what about God's people today? If you're a believer here, do you ever feel let down by God? Do circumstances lead you to wonder if God really loves you? You pray for years for family or friends to give their lives to Jesus, but they reject every invite, shut down every gospel conversation. You suffer from illness, bereavement. Suffering often can threaten to overwhelm us. And you know you're supposed to have joy and peace as a Christian, but sometimes you just feel more like you're tormented. Life can feel like one struggle after another. As Marvin the paranoid android in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy moaned, funny how just when you think life can't possibly get any worse, suddenly it does. Life, loathe it or ignore it, you can't like it. And that's how lots of people feel about life. Even if it's going well, right? You go on Facebook or social media, if you're my age or younger, probably. And everyone is making their life seem better than yours. So in my world, it's what we call the pious pastor post. So they'll put up a picture like this. And they'll write something like, loving getting into God's word for my in-depth, life-changing 20-part series in Ezekiel or something like that. But what they never do is turn the camera around and show you what's really going on. Next slide. That's what they really look like. They go, what on earth am I going to say about this? I've got no idea. See, being a Christian costs, doesn't it? Big time. Uh, serving, giving, denying yourself. You know, people keeping you at arm's length because you're the religious person that they know. And if we're honest, sometimes we wonder if it's all worth it. And then there's other kinds of suffering. In a moment, we'll look at God's answer to the question, how have you loved us in Malachi? But for a moment, let's think about why God allows us to suffer at all. And this is a huge subject, of course. A really good resource is Tim Keller's book, uh, Walking Through Pain and Suffering. So this isn't all there is to say about suffering. But just to say, sometimes we just have to say, I don't know why I'm suffering. That's the message of Job, if you read that very big book, um, that it's futile and inappropriate to assume that we can always understand the reason for our suffering. Um, We know from Genesis that the world is under God's curse because of sin, but it's not for us to say, like Job's less than helpful, helpful friends did, that any incidence of suffering is punishment from God. Job's friends are wrong about that. But we do know that God uses suffering to discipline us sometimes. Hebrews 12 verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? God does use trials of life to refine and strengthen our faith. 
And loving someone doesn't always mean making life easy for them, does it? And so with these Israelites in Malachi, say they had returned to a very comfortable life with national pride fully restored. Now, would that have led them to more faithfulness in God? Well, probably most likely it would have meant just a repeat of their history so far. When they get comfortable, they forget God who gave them that comfort. So there's some reasons where God allows us to suffer. But I can think of occasions, and I'm sure you can, that we just can't see any point to in this life. So the question behind the question of why does God allow suffering, the question behind that really is, is God good? Does God really love us? Well, let's have a look how God answers our next heading, Changing Our Love Lenses. We need to change our love lenses. That is, we need to put aside our ideas, sort of firm, pointy ideas of what God loving us is, and get back to the truth of what the real good life really is. Because remember, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. And the grammar of the original language there has the sense of, I have loved you, I've kept on loving you, and I'm still loving you now. They reply, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. So in Esau and Jacob were Isaac's sons, twins. And even though Esau was the oldest, God chose that it was through Jacob and his descendants, that he would build his chosen nation, Israel. Esau's descendants would become the nation of Edom. So this is Edom who wouldn't let Israel pass through their land in the Exodus. This is Edom who gloatingly joined in the destruction of Israel. You can read about that in Obadiah 13. And the thing is, if you take a detailed look at Jacob and Esau, and the nations descended from them, Neither of them have particularly clothed themselves in glory. So the point God is making here is that these twins, these nations, were pretty much the same. It's just that in his mercy, God chose one to be his people. Back in Deuteronomy 7, God puts it to Israel like this. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So when Israel look over the border to Edom, it's a bit like the movie Sliding Doors or It's a Wonderful Life, where you know where you get to see what life would have been like if certain events hadn't happened. So God hated Esau. So in the same, we don't like the word hate, do we? Nobody likes to be a hater. But God hated Esau in the same way we hate seeing the bad guy get away with it. 
The way we hate seeing the strong put down the weak and gloat over their suffering. It's that kind of hate. Except God is all-powerful. He has all authority, and he gets to decide what will happen to them. He gets to decide. They can try having the last word, rebuilding, but God won't let it stand. They'll face judgment for joining in the trampling down of Israel. So as we get to Malachi, Israel have forgotten that actually they're just as deserving of that kind of judgment. Yet their exile and destruction of Jerusalem was not the last word. The worst thing was not the last thing. God has restored them back, and Jerusalem has begun to be restored. And it's all more than they deserved. So I think a bit like Israel, we can tend to try and domesticate domesticate God. See, the truth is we were made for God, and we only find true purpose and meaning, the good life, in living for him. But we tend to reverse all that. We get an inflated sense of our own goodness and reckon because we're basically good, God is morally obliged to give us an easy ride. But God says to Israel, just have a look over your border. Look how things should be for you. Look at what you deserve. But you're not getting just for the fact that I chose you. So God doesn't owe us anything. We all deserve judgment. But in his mercy, he chooses us and finds a way, a way none of us would have thought of, to love us. You see, Israel could look over the border at Edom and see judgment fall and praise God. We're much more privileged. We can look to the cross and see the judgment we deserve falling on Jesus. On the cross, we see the ultimate in suffering bringing the ultimate good our salvation, which brings glory to God. What looks like shame and and defeat brings us honor and life. In Jesus, we've got God knows what it's like to suffer. God, God chose to suffer and die in our place so that we can be restored from the exile that we deserve. So the point is, it isn't circumstances or how good or bad God's people are that makes the real difference. It is God's choice to save them that has made the difference. That's why I had that verse from Malachi chapter 3. I am the Lord, I the Lord do not change, so you the descendants of Jacob are not destroyed. How has God loved us? It's not even just that he chose to have our debts paid, our sins cancelled out on the cross. He chose us to be counted as his children, as brothers and sisters of Jesus. Ephesians 1, verse 4. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. God being sovereign over who is saved reassures us because it means we can be certain of our own salvation And that despite our inadequacies in sharing the gospel, others will be saved. And God's sovereignty over the suffering and evil we experience sometimes is much more reassuring than the idea that 
suffering and evil is some random fate outside of his control. God being in control means that we know that our suffering is never meaningless. We know it's never the end of our story. In our Hope Explored course that we've just completed, um, we defined the hope that Christians have. A joyful expectation of the future based on true events of the past, which changes everything about our present. Joyful expectation of the future based on true events of the past, which changes everything about our present. Looking back at what God has done for us, remembering what he is doing for us now, and looking forward to the future hope of perfect eternal life with him, as part of his family, that can all help us adjust our love lenses when things are tough. Help us to know that God loves us. So let's bring it all together and ask our last head in, ask our question, why bother? Why bother? So first of all, given all the suffering and evil in the world, why bother believing in God at all? Uh, that was an object, the objection of um, a bloke I was talking to at my mate's wedding a few years ago. He says, if God's all powerful, loving and powerful, he wouldn't let evil and suffering exist on the scale that we experience it. Therefore, God can't exist. Well, I'd counter, and you might come across that objection a lot, I'd counter that if God is all-powerful, you'd expect there to be things about him that we can't fathom, we can't understand. And just because we can discern no purpose in a whole life of thinking about certain kinds of suffering and evil, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have good reasons for them. We have to trust him with those. So to answer the question, is God really loving, we have to look elsewhere. And what we find is Jesus, God knowing what suffering is like. So whilst much about God is unknowable to us, that's not the emphasis of the Bible. The emphasis of the Bible is there's so much we can know about God at one level, there's no mystery at all, because to know Jesus is to know God. And Jesus showed us true love, putting others interests above his own, suffering so that we don't need to suffer, separation from God for eternity. And that's the worst kind of suffering there is. If you're someone who's not bothering with God at all, I want to point out to you that you are bothering with something. You are looking for something to love and to love you back. So it might be a person or a job or a hobby or a combination of those things. And those are all good things, but they aren't designed to take the weight of fulfilling you. They help, but what you're made for is living in relationship with your loving creator. Only he can give you that sense of fulfillment, of being loved forever. Only he can ultimately make everything okay. And actually leaning on people to do that for you, to completely fulfill you in only ways that God can, well, that's not loving to them. But, but I think we're all followers of Jesus here today. 
And still we find ourselves wondering, why do I bother? What do you do when you feel like that? Well, preach yourself the gospel. Keep reminding yourself that God chose you. Remember what Jesus has won for us at great cost to himself. Peace with God. Sins forgiven. Adopted into his family for eternity. We're given the Holy Spirit to empower us to live for Jesus. We're made part of his body, the church, in the here and now. We're living for what we're created for. And when it comes to standing before God, we won't get the verdicts we deserve because he's done everything to make sure we're okay with him. So we need to, when we're feeling like, why bother? We need to tune into God's love language. So in my family of origin, um, we aren't a huggy, heart and sleeve family. That's not our love language. Ours is just kind of joking and toilet humor, which I won't give you any examples of. I'll spare you that. The best way to tune into God's love language is to look to the cross of Jesus. And the cross shows us that God is for us even at great cost to himself. The cross shows us that God noticed we weren't with him. The cross shows us that God wanted to make sure we're okay, that he wanted us to enjoy being with him. On the cross, we see God's justice and love come together perfectly, showing us that we're more sinful than we could dare imagine, but more loved and accepted than we could ever dare hope. More sinful than we could ever imagine. More loved and accepted than we could ever dare hope. And Jesus' resurrection that was celebrated at Easter, that means we don't need to fear this love being parted from this love by death. Jesus' resurrection is the promise that in every way, shape and form, we'll be okay, even after death. We'll be looked after. We'll be loved. So keep preaching yourself the gospel. Don't wait for life to get easy before you're convinced of God's love for you. Be convinced of it through the difficult times. Don't try and create a balanced life pursuing ease. Edom soon found out that trying to build your own kingdom is not the answer. Pursue priority of of God. God's loved you fully, and the best way to live is to prioritize loving him back fully with everything about you. As we get into this series further, we'll see why it matters that we know God loves us. Because when we don't, it sucks the life out of our prayer and worship and living for God. So let's finish reminding ourselves of God's love and how we can't be separated that. These words from Romans 8. And as we read this, as I read out to you, notice the circumstances that it's assumed for us. The circumstances followers of Jesus that we're almost guaranteed to experience as we know God's love. Romans eight thirty five, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither heights nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray.
Lord God, you have shown us you love us in so many ways. And we confess that we forget or we get really prescriptive about how our life should be if you really love us. Lord, help us to see the truth of your love for us. Help us to keep looking to Jesus, looking to his death on the cross and the resurrection and the goodness of your love shown to us in that. For those of us this morning feeling a bit indifferent or even downhearted, please let us know afresh this morning your great love for us. Amen.